I know there is heated debate out there about when you can actually take down your Christmas lights or put out your Christmas trees. And whichever side of that debate you fall on, I'm sorry to say it's official, Christmas is now over. Today we commemorate the Epiphany, the coming of the Magi to Bethlehem. Epiphany is also a season that will lead us all the way to Ash Wednesday and Lent. That word epiphany, epiphany, we still hear it from time to time. Uh, When someone says they just had an epiphany, that means they had some revelation. They just uh, gained some new insight. That's essentially what epiphany this day is all about. It's about God revealing himself. God becoming manifest to the world, even to, as we will see, the Gentiles. Christmas, it it zooms in on the picture of the God-man in the manger. But Epiphany, the camera pans out, so to speak. And the shift, uh, the, the camera begins to shift now and including the focus of how the world is responding to the God-man in the manger. Every Epiphany, the events of Herod and the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 are assigned as the gospel reading. And there's good reason for that. It's the first uh, time that we see the world responding to Christ. But there is a danger for all of us because this passage is a familiar passage. You see, even though most of us have have heard the story of the Magi so many times that it's unsurprising, Matthew's first readers would have been absolutely shocked at the story. The different responses of the different people to Christ, they're filled with irony. So this morning, as we look at the story of the Magi and Herod, I want you to consider your own response to the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to see uh, that there, while there are a multitude of various reactions that people can have, when you boil all of those down, there's just two fundamental responses to Jesus. And these two basic responses, they stand in absolute opposition to one another. There is no middle ground. These two reactions, these two responses to Christ, they're displayed in our story by the Magi and by Herod. Maybe you notice that they actually both ask the same question. Where is he? They're both inquiring about Jesus. But that's where their commonalities end because their motives and their goals for asking that question are polar opposites. So now as we turn to Matthew chapter 2 and contrast Herod and the Magi, we're going to see their contrasting positions, their contrasting loves, and their contrasting outcomes. Positions, loves, outcomes. First, their positions. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east Herod and Magi are two very different kinds of people, and they come from very different places. Herod the Great received that title because, in many ways, he was great. I think most people remember remember him as this ruthless tyrant, because he was, but there was indeed many good things about Herod. One historian noted that Herod was the only ruler of Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping the peace and bringing order out of the chaos of all the peoples living in the area. Herod was a brilliant politician. He was exceptionally skilled in rhetoric. He was even uh, proficient in hand-to-hand combat. 
He was smart, he was strong, he was even religious. One of the greatest accomplishments of Herod was that he rebuilt the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Herod himself did not come, he was not born a Jew, he came from a family that adopted Judaism, uh, and that's one of the reasons why when the Magi come and ask, where is he who's been born king, that uh, sends a sp- uh, shiver down Her- Herod's spine. He is terrified at this threat to his throne. Herod, he ruled the people of Israel, and such a position historically held an important religious function. In the Old Testament, the king uh, was in charge of the nation, and as the king went, so did the nation. The kings then were expected to know the word of God so much that they were to write their own copies of God's word, that it would take root deep in their hearts, that they may govern according to it. But here is Herod. He has to gather the experts, the chief priests and the scribes, in order to find out where the Messiah is to be born. Herod sat on the throne of Israel, and therefore if anyone should have been expected to know where the whereabouts of the long-coming promised Messiah was going to be, and then to respond rightly, it would have been him. And instead, what we see are these wise men. And really, wise men is far too kind of a translation. Literally, the word is magi. The magi, uh, back then, it was a derogatory term to Jews and the first Christians because magi were pagan astrologers. They were typically sorcerers and dream interpreters uh, in pagan religion. They were like the modern-day fortune tellers or tarot card readers, not the kind of folks that you'd expect to sit next to you in church on a Sunday. And unfortunately, that beautiful hymn that we just sung, We Three Kings, it's, it's probably incorrect in at least two ways. Uh, one, later tradition only said that these were kings, uh, and there were probably a lot more than three of them. All we know from the text is that there was a group of pagan astrologers coming from the east, bearing three gifts. These folks, these magi, were in every sense of the term outsiders. Astrology had been forbidden in the Old Testament, and it was often associated with false prophets. So the original hearers of Matthew's gospel would have been absolutely shocked that the ones coming to respond rightly to the Jewish Messiah were these pagan Gentiles. And what made it more ironic was that these magi, they had very limited access to the Hebrew Bible. Whatever remained from the exile of Israel and Babylon, that was what they had at their disposal. Unlike Herod and the chief priests and scribes who know exactly where the Messiah is to be born, these magi, they have to go to Jerusalem and ask around to figure out where the Messiah would be born. Two quick uh, lessons from this. First, God looks for those who are going to act on what they have been given. You see, it's not the amount of head knowledge that mattered, but what each person did with the knowledge they had, that was the deciding factor. And the second lesson is this. There is no one beyond the reach of God's saving embrace. It was not the religious Jews, but the pagan Gentiles who rightly respond to God's coming. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world, all sorts and conditions of men. What does that mean practically for us this morning at St. Philip's? Well, 
You may have noticed St. Philip's is an old church. St. Philip's Church, you have been under the Word of God for more than 340 years. Do not presume on the marvelous privileges that are at your disposal. Such things do not determine the proper response to Jesus Christ. Your access to God's Word, your education, your religious heritage are not automatic guarantees of the proper response that God is looking for. Herod had the power, he had the pedigree, he had all the access in the world to the Word of God. But it was the Magi who truly believed and acted on that knowledge. So Herod and the Magi, they come from two very different positions. Secondly, uh, the essence of their difference came down to their hearts. That's the second point. Let's contrast the loves of the Magi and Herod. In the year 426, St. Augustine published one of his most famous works called The City of God. In it, Augustine was uh, addressing the claim that Christianity had been uh, responsible for the downfall of Rome. But what he spends the bulk of his time talking about in this book is what he calls, he's contrasting two cities, the city of God and the earthly city. And he's not talking about two geographic cities. He's not even talking about a, a spiritual city above and a lower earthly city. What he's talking about, rather, are that these two cities refer to two different loves, two loves that are absolutely opposed to each other. Augustine, he puts it like this. He says, two loves have made two cities, love of self, even to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. Love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, made the city of God. The earthly city glories in itself, the heavenly city glories in the Lord. The earthly city seeks its glory from men, the city of God finds its glory in God. In the earthly city, lust for domination dominates both its princes and the nations that it dominates. But in the city of God, both leaders and followers serve one another in love. You might have wondered how in the world I could have made such an audacious claim earlier that of all the responses to Jesus, they boil down to really just two responses. Well, I didn't make it up. Augustine did. He gets it uh, in the two uh, cities of God there. What Augustine is saying is that you can either love Jesus Christ or you can love yourself. If that's too abstract, look at the Magi and look at Herod because they perfectly portray these two loves. Herod has love of self to the point of hating God. When God comes into the world, Herod wants to kill him because he poses a threat to Herod's throne. The Magi, on the other hand, love God to the point of leaving the comforts of home, the, uh, having, without having a clear sense of where they were going, they travel the 40-day journey to Israel, and they literally take their lives into their own hands and search for their heart's desire. These are the two loves. You can love Jesus, or you can love yourself. That's it. Now, chances are, this morning, if I asked you which response is indicative of your heart, I think most of us, if we're honest, we look at the Magi leaving everything and offering extremely costly gifts, and, and we say, I wish that were me, but I don't think I'm totally like the Magi. 
But we're quick to say, well, I'm certainly not like Herod. After all, I I didn't want to kill God. I'm not out to, to kill God. Well, my friends, if that's you this morning, I have some sobering news. Jesus has some startling words that come later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 5, that push us all towards the category of Herod. He says in Matthew 5, 21, you know the command, do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What's Jesus doing? He's saying that the action of a murderer is not what makes a murderer. It's the heart of a murderer that makes a murderer. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to adultery. He says, uh, those who have lust in their hearts are adulterers. And remember, not all lust is sexual. Herod had a lust for power, for domination. We can have lust for food or, or lust for a certain vision of life. Lust is, is a, dire, a desire for anything that uh, is alter, alternative to God that becomes an ultimate desire. Lust says, I want that, I want to consume it, and then I will be truly happy. Then it will be enough. You see, that's why the chief priests and the scribes and all those in Jerusalem who were just going about their days and not following after the Magi, they're in the same category as Herod. Their indifference to Jesus' birth showed that they would rather serve Herod than the Lord. Their allegiance to Herod, just going on with the status quo, meant a comfortable, decent life. It was simply too much of a demand for them to leave their lives in Jerusalem and go and worship the Lord in Bethlehem. They loved themselves every bit as much as Herod loved himself. If we're honest, Jesus' diagnosis leaves no man standing. He puts us all on the side of Herod. According to Jesus' own words, we are all murderers and adulterers in our heart of hearts. Our lust may not be identical to that of Herod, nor the extent of his anger, but Jesus and the scriptures are clear, we're all Herod. You see, Herod thought the threat of Jesus was a political one. In actuality, it was far greater, far more radical than that. Jesus posed a threat to the throne of Herod's heart. And that was something Herod was not willing to relinquish. It's something that none of us are willing to relinquish when we're born into this world. It's part of our nature. At the root of all of us, ever since the fall of Adam, we've been born with a a heart that is at odds with God, a heart that longs to be its own ruler. That's what original sin really is. In our heart of hearts, we long to be on the throne of our lives. That's why the Bible teaches that it is a miracle that anyone ever responds like the Magi do. It's an absolute gift of God. A heart that loves God has been born again, born of God. But my friends, it's only when we come to see Herod in ourselves that we can begin to respond to Jesus like the Magi do. What was it that caused the Magi to have this kind of love? Whether it was intentional or not, their gifts actually give us a clue as to what produced this love in their hearts. They believed that Jesus was the real king, so they offered him gold, which is always fitting for a king. But he was more than that to them. He was more than just a human king, so they offered frankincense, a spice that was offered in the context of worship, of a deity. 
That was appropriate as well because Jesus is the God-man, fully human and fully divine. But their third and final gift was a bit odd. Myrrh is used for embalming corpses. Now, whether the Magi knew this or not, it was a supremely appropriate gift for this king because here is a king that was born to die. Here's a king who's completely different from Herod. He was God Almighty, but he did not cling to his ultimate almighty power and authority, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on human flesh, becoming a helpless baby. His life was well acquainted with the suffering and sins of his people. He humbled himself to the point of giving up his life for the service of the world. It was for murderers and adulterers of the world that Jesus went to the cross. And it was God's opposition to such things that crushed him there. My friends, doesn't that king appeal to you? Don't you want that kind of love towards you in your own heart? It's the king of the cosmos who gives up his rights and privileges for his beloved. He came into the world to forgive the Herods, of the world and to slowly but surely make them like the Magi. Well, finally, what about the two outcomes of these two responses? In short, Herod's love for himself leads to a life of self-preservation and paranoia. The Roman Emperor Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. He notoriously killed his wife And his sons, out of his deep insecurity and suspicion, he was always looking over his shoulder. His lust for power produced a a deep fear in his heart. And it culminates in verse 16 when, in desperation, he orders the slaughtering of the innocent boys in Bethlehem. The church has remembered that heinous act throughout the centuries on December 28th by celebrating the Feast of the Holy Innocents. In the end of Herod's life, it was, it was very bleak. Knowing that no one would mourn his death, he gave the order to arrest many of his greatest advisors and officials on trumped-up charges. Then he ordered that when he himself died, that they too would be executed, so that at least some tears would be shed at the time of Herod's death. Such was the outcome of Herod. What about the Magi? Again, it's quite the opposite. The Magi risk their lives and courageously resist the despotism of Herod to worship Jesus. And it produces in them an all-surpassing joy. When they finally reach the place where where Jesus was, joy wells up in their hearts. And look at verse 10. It was so great that Matthew describes it by a factor of four. Not only did they rejoice, not only did they rejoice exceedingly, not only did they rejoice exceedingly with joy, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My friends, bending the knees of our hearts before the king is always accompanied, accompanied with an inseparable joy. It's a false choice to say that you can either love God or be happy. It is in offering all that we are and all that we have to Jesus that we find a joy that can never be taken from us. You see, true worship is never just our meet, right, and bounden duty. It is always also the truest and greatest delight of the Christian heart. 
The response of the Magi to Jesus brings joy, but it does more than that. Notice what it does. It enables them to risk their lives greatly for the sake of others. Notice the text says nothing about going back to Herod and telling him what he wanted. They returned to their own country, and in doing so, they were risking their lives. They returned to the pagan place as witnesses and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They were on mission now. They were committed to honoring Jesus and giving themselves for the good of their neighbor. My friends, this self-sacrificial love for the world, it's been the response of Christians from the very start. Yes, Christians have always been guilty of terrible atrocities. Augustine said that there will always be some of that old Herod in the Christian's heart until Jesus returns. But nevertheless, it was the Christians who revolutionized the Western world. Historian Tom Holland, who's, who's not a Christian, he says this about how Christianity remade the world. He says, the belief that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. The Roman world laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed inherent worth. And the origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor the Declaration of Independence, nor the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. The Romans, like Herod, thought it was absolutely nothing to murder babies. The Romans, they left their unwanted babies out on the hills to die, and it was the Christians who went out and rescued them and took them in as their own. Because it wasn't about their capacity for life, it was that they were made in the image of God. Historian Kyle Harper notes that it was the Christians who fought against the sexual abuse in Rome by saying that women were not lesser than men, not used as some objects for men, but they were made in the image of God. It was the Christians in the Roman Empire who lavishly gave all that they have to the poor and it outraged the emperor so much that he created social programs, but they never worked because no one had the same kind of love for all people that the Christians had. It was Christians like Gregory of Nyssa in the 370s that saw the institution of slavery and posed this question. Now what I'm about, the, what I'm about to say are ancient currencies, uh, but, but listen to this question he poses. How many obols for the image of God? How many staters do you get for selling the God form human being? For Jesus Christ knows the worth of human nature has an entire cosmos not worthy to be exchanged for an, a human life. Who can buy or sell a man once you realize he's in the image of God? It's that same Christian conviction that led William Wilberforce to stand before the British Parliament to fight with all that he had to end the British slave trade. It was the same conviction that Dr. Martin Luther King had fighting for civil rights in America and saying there are no gradations in the image of God. Every human being from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every human being is made in God's image. This is why we must fight segregation with all our nonviolent might. It was the Christians down through the centuries who considered 
obedience to Jesus to be of more worth than their reputation, than their wealth and security, than even their very lives. They were courageous enough to speak truth to power, and they literally remade the world. Now, my friends, there remains the need for courageous people to stand up for the helpless and the vulnerable in our own day, for the oppressed, the unborn, the poor. But we now stand at a unique time in history. We are about to enter, or maybe have already entered, a time every bit as pagan as the first century Roman Empire. But the pendulum has swung to the other end of the spectrum. Most in our day do not deny individual human rights. They idolize them. For all the Christians that I previously mentioned, they believe that human rights were inseparable from the Christian faith. But our, Christian, our society today is seeking to remove the two from being together, and as a result, there is nothing greater or higher than an individual in our day today. The one rule that you cannot break today is to tell somebody else what to do, to cross their own free choice. And as a result, our society, it's in, it's in chaos. It's filled with discord and division, and it's filled with individuals going in a million different directions. And the ones who are the strongest or the loudest are the winners. My friends, we need brave Christians today who are willing to consider their bank accounts, to consider their reputations, to consider their very lives of nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. We need courageous Christians who are willing to speak truth to power, not for their own comfort, but for the good of the world around them. We must recapture some grander, some more beautiful, more beautiful vision beyond ourselves. We must recapture the truth that it is not, uh, that duty is not always at odds with delight. My friends, may our love for Jesus propel us to be like the people of God, through the centuries. May we resist oppressive regimes, whether they deny individual rights or idolize them. May we, like Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian exile, refuse to assimilate to the pagan world around us. And may we hold fast to Jesus' word. And if threats or danger arise, we can say with Daniel's friends, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from burning in the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that you have made. Amen.